Well, if you're a guest or a visitor uh, with us today, or perhaps you've just back after the summer, uh, last Sunday we started a, a new series together, uh, looking at an, an ancient kind of text, really. It's called the Apostles' Creed. And it's something that the Christians right across all the traditions and denominations and cultures kind of stand together on. Uh, and I thought it would be great just to journey through uh, that Apostles' Creed together. Uh, so I'd love it if we could read it together. Have we got it on the screen, Rich, this morning? I'm not sure if I've got any. Okay, here we go. Perhaps we could just share in these words together this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Such a fabulous summary of what the apostles taught and uh, the message that's been passed on from, from generation to, to generation. Just want to say a real quick word because I forgot to last time. Uh, in the middle of it all, this, our voices went slightly quiet when we used one word, which is the one holy Catholic church. Please don't be scared of the word Catholic. I'm not suddenly going to insist that you all call me father or anything like that. The word Catholic just means universal. And so as we share in these words together, we really can say we believe. Uh, anybody here today, that was the first time they'd ever read the Apostles' Creed. There's no shame at all in admitting it. Uh, how many people, it was their second time because we did it last Sunday as well. Uh, but we share in these words together as we summarize and celebrate together this faith that's been passed down to us. So that's what we're going to be journeying through for the next couple of months together. If you're uh, part of that and it raises questions for you and you'd love to be part of a small group where you can share in these themes together, uh, please do speak to me. We've got small groups that meet uh, two evenings every week, a whole bunch of them, different places uh, across the, the village and the city. We'd love to put you in one uh, if that would be really helpful to you. We believe and what I'm praying as we journey through this together is that we'll come to not just know what we believe but know him in whom we believe. I'm going to touch on a subject this morning that I'm aware for some of us particularly will be quite difficult. It will be a, a phrase, a, a, a word that for all kinds of reasons will be a word that has become loaded laden with other meaning. But it's a word, I think, that we need to recapture and reclaim for all kinds of reasons. There's kind of a, I think, culturally, a little bit of a, a conflict going on. I, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but uh, I can feel that tension, that conflict in, in many areas. And I just want to illustrate it with, with two quick stories. Uh, one of our, our kids recently uh, went on a horse riding lesson. Uh, I won't name them because I don't want to embarrass her. 
but uh, it reminded me of when I was younger, we went away as a youth group together, and we had this, this horse riding lesson. Uh, and of course, as, as kids, it was just fun, and it was exciting, and they were bringing different horses out. When they saw my height, they kind of called, guys, we're going to need the big horse, uh, get, the, get the big horse out for, for, for this guy. Uh, and so they sat me on this, this huge beast of a thing. And they were explaining to us the different rules, the different ways. You know, if you want to go left, you pull the reins left. It's very complicated. You want to go right, you pull the reins right. And the guy said to us, you won't believe me until it happens, but there's this relationship between a rider and a horse. If you look in a certain direction, the horse will head in that direction. It doesn't matter which way you pull. So you've got to lead with your focus, with your attention. So we're doing this sort of little trot uh, around this, the, the little paddock that there was, and uh, one guy went off and opened a gate which led up into a field. And I'm always drawn to tangents, you know, little shiny things. I'm like, oh, I wonder where, where that gate goes. And the horse senses that I'm looking towards this fence and just gallops towards it, decides it wants to jump over this fence, and we were off uh, into the field. Uh, I thought then I'd, I'd better hang up my, my cowboy boots, I think. But it's true, isn't it, in, in life that our, our focus will determine our reality. That where our attention lies is where we will center ourselves, where we'll find purpose and, and meaning. And it highlights for me this whole thing that I need something. There's something I need. The tension we're going to come to is the fact that there's also something I know very definitely I don't need. But I need to be led. I need help to fix my focus. Interestingly, the older I'm getting, the more and more I'm realizing I need to be led. I need someone who will mentor me, someone who will encourage me, someone who will train me, someone that will speak life and truth and direction to me. We need to be led, don't we? And there are times in our lives when we realize this most clearly. I, I don't know what to do in this situation. I need someone who's been through this before to help me. In short, we need to be fathered. We need somebody who at times will come to us and say, John, that was not good. And who will come at other times and say, John, it was great. You need to be fathered. But interestingly, there's something that we very definitely know that we don't need. Another holiday, uh, this one was, was this year, we were down in Cornwall together. Uh, and uh, on one of the days out, we went to something, I think it's called the Adventure Quarry or something like that. It's the kind of place where you pull in, you get out of the car, and you can smell the testosterone uh, in the air. They had a massive zip wire uh, over the quarry that uh, two of our kids uh, wanted to go out. Really great. We uh, saw a woman there in her 90s that was doing it to celebrate her 90th birthday. And when we were stood there, she had to do it the second time because they forgot to film it. Bless her heart. But yeah, just, just brilliant. Uh, but there was one thing that we signed up to do uh, while we were there, which was axe throwing. Anybody had a go at axe throwing? No, it's as simple as it sounds. You kind of go to this little shed, again, where the testosterone is just hanging in the air ready for you. Uh, and there's a wooden uh, target at the front. There's some axes on the floor. And you pick them up and you chuck them uh, at this target. And then they talk you through all these different techniques. But essentially, it's throwing axes at a wooden thing. And I was aware that as I was stood there, suddenly with an axe in my hand, there was a certain tension I felt. I'm not looking for sympathy, but I'm sure some of us have felt the tension. The tension was this. You're meant to be good at this. I don't know why, but as a bloke, 
You're meant to be good at chucking stuff at things. Especially if there's an element of danger involved, you're meant to be good at this. Anybody felt that tension? Anybody not particularly good at chucking things, sharp things and dangerous things? It's strange, isn't it? See, I think the tension that we're feeling at the moment, or part of it as a culture, is that we have a generation that is crying out to be fathered. Perhaps not even knowing what it's crying out for. But I don't think we know what fathering is anymore. I don't think we know what it is anymore. If I was to ask you to complete a phrase this morning, I'm sure many of us would come back with a similar word. Toxic masculinity. It's a phrase we hear a lot these days. If I was to ask you to define it, it wouldn't take long to come up with a a pretty clear definition just among us. The kind of the, I don't know, the dominating, the aggressive authority that kind of we associate with toxic masculinity. Uh, The sense of entitlement that often comes with it. And so there's this tension now that exists around what it means to be male. What it means to be female. Some of these traits, of course, are so dependent, aren't they, on the culture that we were brought up in and the era in which we live. I was listening to somebody recently who'd been on holiday to Spain uh, with two of his young children, and people assumed that the young children were girls because they didn't have their ears pierced. Just different cultures assuming different things. So what does it mean to father? What does it mean to be fathered? The picture gets very murky when we recognize that very often we project our ideas on that, onto the God who is Father. For some of us here today, I'm so aware that we will not have had a good experience of being fathered. For some of us, maybe even the word Father is is just a concept. There's just someone who wasn't there. Others of us, it'll be that person who should have protected us, should have cared for us, should have provided for us, but. And it's so hard then, isn't it, to imagine God as a good father when our own experience, our only experience of being fathered is such a difficult one. One of the things that Jesus insists on is that as we pray, we cry out to God from a place of Father. He even tells us that we should pray and ask for our daily bread, our our basic provisions. We should come to God every day as a child would come to a father. Dad, I'm hungry. Dad, I need this. So what does Jesus mean by the fathering, the fatherliness of God? Could you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 15? Luke chapter 15. It's a really familiar story uh, for us. So I want to kind of pause as we read it through together just to draw out uh, certain things. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to start reading at verse 11. It's actually the third of three stories uh, that Jesus tells all about things which are lost. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But Luke 15, verse 11. So Jesus continued, story three. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. 
and pause there for just a second. Because to understand why Jesus' stories sometimes drew such huge crowds and such huge attention and why they've lived on in such the vivid way that they have is that we're so used to hearing this story that it sounds normal. This is not a normal story. In the culture of Jesus' day, there were certain topics which were taboos, you know, not for the dinner table kind of discussions. And one was your inheritance. I don't know if that's something that you've chatted about uh, with your parents. Our kids haven't talked to us about it yet because I'm a Baptist minister. But uh, it's, it's a difficult subject to talk about anyway. But this son doesn't want to just raise it. He wants to demand it early. Give me my share of the inheritance. Dad, your only worth to me really is in the money pot you're going to leave me when you die. So if we can just skip ahead a couple of years and I can get my hands on that. And perhaps if we look at the culture, we can begin to understand it. And culturally, the younger son has, has no real position in the father's business. The older son, the other brother, well, he's going to inherit it. Or he's, the name that's above the door will be his name one day. And when the time comes to divide the inheritance, it's not going to be d divided equally. The eldest son, the firstborn, always got more, and then it went down and down and down. So the youngest son is thinking, well, you're going to get two-thirds anyway. I'm going to do a third of this, so I might as well have it now and go make something of it. The other thing that you need to know about Jewish culture is that it's deeply patriotic. What the dad says goes. In his own house, the, the dad was meant to represent the rule of law. But he doesn't have to do this. In fact, dads would not do this. You could guess the answer immediately. But in this story, Jesus says, this father divided the inheritance between them. So immediately, everyone listening is going, well, what, why would you do that? This son doesn't need money. He needs a good lesson in kind of, I don't know, how to win friends and influence people. He needs to be taught. You don't, you don't do this. But this father allows his inheritance to be divided ahead of time and given to a son who's got plans and dreams of his own. Why? Well, maybe this father knows this son is never going to be happy where he is. But for him to really, truly value who he is and, and what he's got, he's going to have to be given some, some freedom. Which immediately tells me something about what it means for Jesus to call God Father. For Jesus, God is a father who loves this son enough to let him go. Loves this son enough to say, if that's what you need, and if that's what you want, then I'm not going to keep you here under duress, under stress. I don't want you here if you're just here for the end game. If you don't want to be here, you can go. A father who was willing to risk his reputation. Can you imagine what this would do in the kind of village, the town where these people lived? The dad who said yes to that kid, to that request. The dad who ahead of time now doesn't own a farm anymore. The older son's got two-thirds of it. What kind of father is this? If anyone is being prodigal in this story, it's actually the father. Verse 13. Not long after that, the young son got together all he had 
set off for a distant country and there invested wisely, no, not quite, <laughs> squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was severe famine in that country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. Anyone know here which animal is viewed by Judaism as the least clean of all animals? Pigs. So not only has he left his father's business, his father's house, he's left his nation, he's gone to work for a Gentile, all of these are scandalous anyway, and now he's feeding pigs. Couldn't get any lower. He went to hide himself out. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. That last phrase tells me that he asked, can I, after the pigs have eaten or before they eat, can I grab some from the, from the bucket? No. No, you can't. So now his rank, his status is, we'll feed the pigs, but not you. He's lower now than, than pigs. And there's a beautiful phrase that Jesus uses here. When he came to his senses. Had to go a long way from home. But finally, he came to his senses. Interestingly, in the original Greek, it's uh, literally, it says, he came to himself. You travel far enough, you'll eventually meet yourself. He finally saw himself. What am I doing here? And then this idea begins to occur to him. See, sometimes in the ancient world, when a son had so um, disrespected his family, uh, there was no way that he could be now a rightful heir, a rightful son. But sometimes they would be disinherited, but they would be given a job, a position, a position of a servant, of a slave. And this son thinks to himself, well, I can't possibly expect my father to treat me like a son, but there's just a chance that he might treat me as a slave. One of the reasons I've wanted to do this series together is because what we believe about God really matters. How you imagine God will treat you really matters. Your vision who God is really matters. How does God treat this wasteful, disrespectful son? All he can imagine is the best, surely on the table, the best offer left for him is slave. And it's interesting, I think for many of us here today, we'd never put it in that sort of language. But I wonder how often we feel that our worth to God is in what we can do. I was listening uh, recently to a woman called Ruth Rice. Uh, she's founded something called Renew Wellbeing. She's really passionate about churches becoming safe spaces uh, for people to say when they're not okay, when they're struggling, to, to ask for prayer together. I don't have a clue what's going on out there. There's all kinds of interesting noises. But that's, that's her passion. And recently she was telling her story about how this came to be. She was a busy mum, primary school teacher, a 
church leader. Uh, she used to organize things like pantomimes and, and the like. Very effective, um, kind of efficient, driven kind of person. A young family, loved it all. Suddenly she hits this wall and she describes it as that, hitting a wall. One day everything's fine, the next day I can't, I can't do this anymore. She tries to keep going, but the strain on her body means that she loses her voice. How many people know sometimes if we won't listen to ourselves, our body will scream at us until we're forced to listen. She loses her voice because of the stress and the strain that she's under. She tries to keep going for a while. She takes a tambourine into school to get the kids' attention and kind of speaks through this TA, apparently was, was brilliant. But every night she'd go home and just sit there and just cry, not really knowing why she was crying, just crying and crying, can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. Until eventually she has to take serious amounts of time off work. She's left at home, just in bed, doesn't want to get up. She just feels like she's letting her family down. She's letting her work down. And interestingly, she said, I felt like as a Christian, I was letting the team down. She tries to come back to church, and she said it was excruciating. She said it got so bad at one point, she had a friend, this is literally true, make her a sign. She says, please stop patting me, I'm not a dog. It'll be okay. You'll be fine. Sometimes in Christian circles, we want the testimony, don't we? We want people to jump ahead to that chapter where everything's fine again. Sometimes churches are really difficult places to say, I'm not okay. I've done all the praying I can. I've read all the stuff you told me to read, but I'm not okay and I don't need to be patted. I'm not a dog. So eventually she decides, like, I'm just going to have to stop going to church for a while. Spends weeks just in her bed, wondering what on earth has happened, what's gone wrong. And then one day she describes this experience of feeling like God literally came and sat next to her and whispered this to her, Ruth, I could not love you anymore and I will not love you any less. You hear, this, you hear her tell this story years later in tears still because of this one moment. And she said, I was doing nothing. I wasn't earning his love. I wasn't serving anyone. And she said she kept a journal of those days, and she wrote in that journal, Lord, I do not want my voice back if it means to go into that place where I don't know you in this way, this intimate way. And she said I had to discover that everything else could be stripped away, and God would still love me as his child. still love me as his child. One of the reasons that Jesus tells this story is not that he, this kid was a son because he was good at what he did on the farm. He just was, was the father's son. And I wonder if some of us just need to hear this today. I couldn't love you anymore. And I'll never love you any less where you are, as you are. That's what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about God as our Father. 
And against that, all other images, as distorted and broken as they are in our world, even the very best fathers don't come close to this, pale in insignificance to the love of this father, this God. I wish that was the end of the story, but it it goes on further. This this son decides he's going to come home and prepares this speech. But I've sinned against heaven and against you. It's another way of saying I've reversed the natural order of things. I've disrespected you. I know I can't be your son again, but take me on as your slave. He begins the long, lonely walk home. And then Jesus tells us that this father, when he sees him in the distance, catches a glimpse of him on the horizon, runs. Now, Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, is great on this. I recommend it to anyone. He says this, Jewish men don't run. I never realized this. It's seen as a childish thing, a real silly thing. If you're ever caught running, it's because you weren't prepared or late. It's an embarrassing thing to run in public, especially as an older person, as an elderly person. So when Jesus tells us that God is our Father, he's describing the one who will come running towards us. And when I've done the good and the bad and the ugly, I can expect the same welcome from this Father, from this God. So this Father kicks up the dust of his path as he sprints towards his boy, grabs him, hugs him, The best this kid could imagine was that he'd be clasped in chains, but he was grabbed in the embrace of a father. Doesn't even let him get through this speech that he's prepared. He says, I can't let you stand here in rags. I've got to put a robe on you. I've got to put a ring on your finger. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party and celebrate. Because you were dead and now you're alive. That's That's what it feels like to come to Jesus, doesn't it? I was dead, God. Something in me wasn't beating, wasn't breathing, wasn't aware, and now I'm alive. But there's an older brother, the kid who stayed at home. Dad, you never threw me a party. You've killed the fatted calf for this kid. You could have given me a young goat party with my mates. And this father looks at him. There's something so sad, isn't there? And the vision of who the father is, of the older son saying, you should have loved me because I was obedient. You should have loved me because I worked really hard. I thought I deserved something. I thought I'd earned something. See, the reality is this story is about two lost kids, two lost sons, both of them just interested in dad because of his stuff. One of the things that Ruth Rice wrote about during that season was the huge realization that God just loved to spend time with her. How many of us could say that? I know that God loves to spend time with me. If you were to dig through my journals or dig through yours if you keep them, have we ever written that? Loves to spend time with you. So often we come to God for stuff, don't we? God, I need energy for that. I need an idea for this. We need resources for that. God wants us to come to him just because he loves to spend time with us.
there's an old song um, by someone called uh, Catherine Scott, and the song is called Child of God. And in the chorus, it says, Father, you're all that I need, my soul's sufficiency, my strength when I'm weak, the love that carries me, and your arms enfold me till I am only a child of God. for all our concern about what fatherhood means and how we father in this culture, in this context, how the church is seen, how the message of the church is seen, until we understand what it is to be fathered by God. That there are open arms of embrace waiting for each and every one of us, older son, younger son, waiting to hold us until we are only a child of God. I wonder today if you would just pause with me and just let's bow our heads together. And first of all, I, I want to pray for anyone here who struggles to call God Father for a whole host of reasons. In some ways, it's, it's just the word, the experience of being fathered by God is, is far more important than that. But I want to pray for the the cause of that. The years that led up to that. And in Jesus' name today, I pray that by God, your spirit here, healing might begin. anyone here today for whom dad was distant, either physically or emotionally, then I pray, God, by your spirit here today, would your healing begin. I particularly want to pray right now for any of our older congregation who can't serve in the way that they used to. Their ability, their energy is, is different. And just the struggle of that, the conflict, sometimes the guilt of that. And I pray, Father, that in this season, they and we might learn that you are the Father who whispers to us, I could not love you any more, and I will not love you any less. I pray this morning for those of us who are so busy, who life is so hectic, who have forgotten that the Father loves to spend time with us. And so I pray today that by your Spirit here among us, healing might begin.
Father God, as we turn to you today from wherever we are in our journey, whether we're still at home, whether we're a long way from where we were, whether we're on the road to try and rebuild, to repair, whether we're locked in a place of thinking we've got to earn it, we've got to deserve it, we've got to merit it somehow. I pray that those things, God, would just melt away in the presence of your love. Might your presence right now, I pray, come running towards us. Might your arms, God, enfold us until we are only a child of God.